Grace is going to read for us Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. And the translation, per our usual, is a little, a little maybe different than what's in your Bible, but you can follow along, and I think you'll pick up, pick up what's going on. And Jesus continued, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, to make them void. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to establish them as the truth of truth, reality itself. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, no truth at its most granular component will pass from the law until all is accomplished, until its truth is fully seen. Therefore, whoever subverts the bond of the very smallest part of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called a very small part of the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, meets their demands, and teaches them, will be called great, distinguished in nature, in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, your proper relating, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter, never experience, the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Grace. So, we've, uh, we've said that we want to live a life that flourishes, right? Like we spent the summer talking about the ten words, the, the, um, the first words that God speaks to his people when he brings them out of exile and enslavement and, and, and oppression and, and, bright, and is preparing them to enter into a life of free and full, like a life of promise, right? That, that he gives them these kind of simple words on which to build their existence out of, to build their existence on top of, Right? And we've said that like, our life is built on the same simplicity, these same simple truths. Yet the truth is, if we're honest, a lot of times we don't experience life as flourishing. We experience it more as withering, right? Maybe we have moments of flourishing. But like, you know, we've read a couple weeks ago in Psalm 1 where the psalmist says when we're planted like a tree uh, like next to the river, which uh, bears fruit in every season and never withers. Like sometimes we say like we have seasons of fruitfulness, seasons of, of, um, of flourishing, but maybe life doesn't seem like every season is flourishing. Every season is fruitful. And so where's the disconnect? What's the disconnect between the truth that we simply believe, that God has called us into a free life and given us a way to live a free life, and what actually, how we actually build and experience the fullness of that life, right? So what's the disconnect? What's the, what's the thing that keeps us from, from doing that? So we said at some level, at least in our cultural moment, that the thing that keeps us from experiencing the flourishing of life, the withering of life, is this ever-churning unease and, and restlessness that we live in. So that can be anxiety, like in the sense of a fearful anxiety, or it could be a, like an anticipatory anxiety, like a always looking for something next kind of anxiety. The scriptures call this a disquieted heart, that it's a, a disquieted, unsettled, unrhythmic moving faster or slower kind of rhythm of heart that actually keeps us from the thing that we long for. And so we said, okay, so, so if, if that's true, what is it, how is it that we're going to, again, to build on this life, this life of simplicity, a life of flourishing? And we've said that the, that the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually helping us address this very issue. That, we, that of all the ways that we can talk about the Sermon on the Mount and all the treasures that we can get out of the Sermon on the Mount, that the way that we're going to be engaging it over these, these next few months is looking at this, how do we build a flourishing life, a life that, that no matter the storms that come, the rains and the storms that come actually stay firm and fully grounded 
on the foundation of a simple life. And so we observed last sermon a couple weeks ago that one aspect of that, that kind of causes this unease and unrest is what's called imaginative gridlock. The, the, the thing that happens to us when we don't see the world in a way that the world actually is. A way in which we experience when our navigational processes are off. When our maps and models, whether of the physical world and the universe or the kingdom of God, aren't actually accurate or vivid. And so it's no surprise that when those things are off, that we run into dead ends over and over again, right? That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. The necessity to settledness, to being ones whose hearts are content, as we've been talking about, is of proper orientation to where we are and to where we're going, is why Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by reorienting his apprentices, providing them a new map and model to aid them in their adventures. That's how the Sermon on the Mount actually opens. If you missed... This is the last, last time we talked about it. It's all available. You can listen to it. Don't worry if you miss that. You won't miss where we're going today. But what happens in, in this opening of the Sermon on the Mount, these verses that preceded the ones that Grace read for us, is that Jesus actually reframes the question for us. He remaps, remodels our world and our universe by reframing the question from what do I need to live a blessed life, a happy, good, and purposeful life, a question that drives us all at some point and at various points in different ways, And he shifts that, he reframes it to how is my already blessedness, my already blessed, blessed, remember in the Beatitudes, the word blessed is already, a sense of already. My already blessedness, my already happiness, goodness, and purpose being diluted or covered. Not how do I go get something, but how do I uncover the thing that I have? Jesus breaks our imaginative gridlock and allows us to step off the treadmill of trying harder, of going after and trying to get the things that we want to make a good and happy and full life. Pulls us off of that so that we can redirect our energy and efforts and affections to the right place, to the right end, to the proper order. Life is a pilgrimage. We say that, right? But it's a pilgrimage that we don't typically imagine. We are going deeper or maturing in our existence rather than progressing somewhere else. This is the image of, the, of life with God, of life with others that Jesus gives us. That it's not a journey to some other place. It's actually an uncovering, a going deeper, a maturing of the thing which we already have, the place that we're already in. The people and situations then that we face in our daily lives are not obstacles to this wholeness and holiness, this happiness and goodness and purpose that we're after. They're not the obstacles anymore. Jesus has removed them from the picture. It doesn't matter how the world interacts with you, like you can actually be full and whole right where you are. That's what the first part of the the Beatitudes says. That's what the map and the model tells us. So then, what keeps us from experiencing what is already ours in Jesus? If Jesus changes the, the way the universe is structured for us, changes the world and the life that we're after, what keeps us from flourishing? I mean, there's still an assumption in the way Jesus describes it that that there is something more to life, right? Anxiousness and unrest stem not just from our navigational processes when they're off, but also from our relational processes. Not just the grand destination, the life that we're after, and all that we're doing to try to get it, to get there to it, but the granular interactions in which our desired destination actually comes into existence. So this week... We move from the widening gaze, and if you weren't here with us, this might make no sense at all, but everybody else will get it. We move from the widening gaze of first century maps and models, so there won't be any Ptolemy or Carpenicius or Galileo, though we won't talk about those guys at all today. 
So good, right? Everybody's great with that? Today, we move from this wide gaze of the world, and we leap into the minuscule world of quantum mechanics. Yes, everybody should be super excited, right? Now, before you dismiss the thought with a laugh, as you already did, right? Uh, or prepare for a nap, maybe. Like, that's okay, it's 4 o'clock. Remember how we discussed those 10 simple words in Exodus over the summer. You remember how we talked about them? Didn't we say that the 10 words, the law that Jesus talked about, and what Grace just read for us in Matthew 5 or 17, that these are a law in the natural sense? That the 10 words were like, a, were like constant principles that describe why life remains free or why it doesn't. Certainly, from these foundational principles, the fledgling nation of Israel created a whole set of regulations with consequences of a civil law. That's the book of Le Leviticus. And the Pharisees constructed on top of that a labyrinth of daily protocols, right? But the law itself, the ten words, the Decalogue literally just means ten words. The law itself was nothing more, was something more fundamental, something like gravity. What keeps life grounded and orbiting the sun so that life can flourish on planet Earth is gravity and living in the bonds of gravity, right? That's what Newton told us. We, what keeps life free from enslavement and oppression so that it can flourish are the ten words. And residing within the bonds of life enmeshed in God's person and rhythm with others. A flourishing and expansive life is possible within the bonds of such forces. We can do all kinds of amazing things within gravity's reality. We can do all kinds of amazing things within the reality of the ten words. Still, the laws themselves describe and account for the world we experience, but not wholly so. Not completely so. They tell the whole story, but not all the story. Even Newton knew there was more to the force of gravity that kept the world spinning around the sun than just gravity. There was something else happening between these mass forces, these, for these things that existed and were given this weight called planets, right? More, but not less. And so we add Faraday's discovery of the electromagnetic fields. I'm sure you're all familiar with all these things, right? And then Einstein's particles and protons, and then Bohr and Dirac's quantum physics, all were inclusive and built on Newton's gravity, which gives weight to our existence, but were providing a more granular imagination of life's operations, and thus a whole plethora of ways to live more fully flourishing with those around us, right? Most of the technology we have today is because of quantum mechanics, because we discovered we went granular rather than got bigger. It went smaller instead of getting bigger. And just as Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, as Grace read for us a few moments ago, but to demonstrate its validity and universality, not by trying to help us see a bigger picture, but ironically enough, by getting more granular with it, taking us to the iotas and dots of the very fundamental thing. So too does quantum mechanics. So hang with me for just a minute. I want to just say some things. You can dismiss them later if you want. It's fine. No, nobody here is going to, like, nobody's a, 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 a theoretical physicist, myself included. But I do think it's helpful for us to see, in the very nature of the world, how God's actually designed us to live and interact, right? And so the truth that, that Jesus gives us isn't just a spiritual disconnected truth, a theoretical truth. It's actually the very truth of our existence. So here's what quantum physics and quantum mechanics says, according to Carlo Rovelli, who's an Italian theoretical physicist. He says, quantum mechanics describe how things occur. That is, how they become evident. How we know that they exist. Like how we see them, experience them, all those kind of things. And how they interact with each other, how they relate. 
It's not about trying to describe what a thing is. It's about describing how a thing reacts, re relates, occurs. It's a world of existent things. And in the existence of things is a realm of possible interactions. Reality is, therefore, interaction. Reality is relation. In a world described by quantum mechanics, there is no reality except in the relations between physical systems. Things don't exist unless they run into other things, unless they interact with other things. It's a world of events, and events are just junction points between processes, which are passages from one interaction to another. So it's everything that we experience is this constant interaction of things. Things interacting with things, things interacting with other things, things we interact with. The properties of things, the nature of them, their disposition, manifest, become real in a granular manner only in the moment of interaction. The nature of them, what they truly are, their characteristics in nature, only become real in a granular manner at the moment of interaction. That is to say, at the edges of interactions, of processes. So, in case you didn't get it, which is fine, um, Quantum mechanics essentially argues this, that existence is granular. It's finite. That means it's real and has knowable limits. So in quantum mechanics, there isn't infinity. Infinity is removed from the, co the conversation. What, what, it's what existence is reduced to is something that can be measured at a very small level, a granular level. So it means that there is, a, there is small that you can't go beyond. There is a real existence that you can't get out of that you can't theorize away in infinity numbers, right? That you actually have to deal with. Quantum mechanics says that our existence is granular. It operates within some knowable limit, even at a very small, in a very small way, right? And that life is indeterminate. That means that the future, within limit, the limits of what is knowable, like in this real thing, the limits of probability, is not unequivocally determined by the past. That means change is possible. All that means is change is possible and possible within the limitations of the thing that exists. And things don't exist in infinity. Things don't exist in a multi-universe of stacked realities. It exists within some granular, finite thing. And within the possibilities of how that granular, finite thing works and interacts is the possibility of how it can interact, right? Make sense? And so reality then is relational. That is, the life of experience is a product of interactions with others who are interacting with others. The life of experience, the life that we actually get to live, is a product of interactions with others who are interacting with others. The nature and characteristics of existence manifest in the minute interactions and collisions that make up our daily lives, says quantum mechanics. That the nature and characteristics of our existence of who we are and where we are and what we are and all those kind of things exist only in the interactions and collisions of daily lives. And here's a crucial concept because the way, of, the way time works within quantum mechanics is that time doesn't really exist. Time is just an arbitrary measurement, just the, the swing of a pendulum. It, it's not an observable reality. So things don't change over time. Things change in relationship. How do things change? Not just by giving it longer to act, but rather in the actual action itself, in the interaction itself, is how things actually change. So, back to our question, where will we enter or experience the kingdom of heaven? The already whole and holiness, the happiness and goodness and purposefulness that we believe is ours in Jesus, because this is the, the, what God has rescued us from and called us into. 
Well, it's in the small, granular interactions and collisions of daily existence. The real interactions with real people that we have on a regular daily basis. Even sometimes our own internal interactions, right? Freedom flourishing in the kingdom of God manifests. That is, their nature is experienced in granular interactions, in the right relating at the smallest parts. Or, as Jesus would say, down the road to the same apprentices and the ones whose understanding of the world needed to be both expanded and deepened, in Luke 17, Jesus being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, when we get to see the reality of God with us, God for us, life in God. Jesus answered, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold... The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, is within you. This is the full translation of the words, right? Like if you look in your Bible, most likely they'll have it as a footnote, and it'll say all these things underneath the footnote. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, within you, within your grasp. It's granular. It's real. It's not just someday, it's right now. It's here. Okay, so what does that have to do with anxiousness and unrest? Good question. Remember, awareness is just the gate. It's not the goal. So we're becoming aware of things. It's great, cool. The world works at a granular level in indeterminacy, like there's possibility for change. Change isn't a time-related thing. Change is a relational thing. All of existence, really, the true nature of existence comes in our relationships. The things that we want, the, the kingdom of God, even that we want to experience, is in how we actually relate to one another. So cool, that's cool. It's great to be aware of that. So that's, that's awesome. But that's not the goal. The goal of becoming aware of our unease and unrest, of noticing when our heart speeds up or our minds race or our stomach tightens, is, to, is for a deeper, fuller life for ourselves and those that we share life with, right? It's a maturity, a change that occurs, manifests only in relationship, in the interactions and collisions with others who are interacting and colliding with others also. That if we really want to deepen our life with God and have a deep life with God and others to mature, then we have to interact. And we have to understand what's happening in interactions, be aware of what's happening in interactions, and also be ones who learn from our interactions. Okay? As a friend would say, you tracking with me? Staying with me? Good? Great. When we experience, maybe this is a better way to say it, when we experience the disconnection of reality, when we feel those disquieted feelings that help us to become aware that something is less than blessed, which we've talked about the last few weeks, right? It is fundamentally a relational matter at a granular, everyday, specific, finite interaction level. When we experience the disconnection of reality, it's something fundamentally is going on at the granular level that we need to pay attention to. Our anxieties exist fundamentally in the actual conversations and interactions we have with others each day. Not in the situation or the differences, but in the actual encounters themselves. Steve Cuss says it this way, that a powerful way to de-escalate anxiety in ourselves and others is to diagnose its source, to, in our conversations, become aware of the characteristic natures of how we're relating. Jesus takes us from the widening map of what the kingdom is, this whole and holy life with God and others that we talked about last time, into this churning contours of real life to where we actually enter the kingdom and he does so to help us diagnose the nature of our collisions and exhort us 
and the truth that change or maturation manifests occurs in those same collisions. That the very place where we feel the tension is actually the place where we mature. So let me paraphrase how Jesus moves us in this direction. Now, you probably are familiar with what happens in Matthew 5 after this, right? This is where Jesus begins in Matthew 5, verse 21, I believe. Um, 5, verse 21, to kind of give these you've heard it said statements, but I say to you statements. And kind of works back through the ten words a little bit, right? Connects us back into this kind of simple law, at least that's where he starts. Kind of expands on that and gets into some of the Levitical and Pharisaical rules that were built out on top of it. But he's kind of, kind of jumping back into these kind of world at a, a 30,000 foot view and trying to bring us down back into the granular level. And so, if I think Jesus moves us into this direction. He says, if you want to know why you're so unsettled, look at the moments of interaction those little collisions throughout the day cause. Like if you want, Jesus, Jesus is saying, if you want to know why, even though you have the right map of the world, something still feels off, stop looking at the big thing and look at the small thing. Focus your attention down. And again, Jesus assumes that we think that we're good and grounded in our daily relations. Most of us would probably agree, right? Like we feel like we're good. We know the simple words. We know the simple truths. Don't kill people. Don't steal from people. Right? We get, we get that. Like, love God. Don't make idols. All those kind of things. Right? We get those. Keep a Sabbath. Yeah, you know, that's, that's up, to, up for grabs. Honor your parents. Whatever. But like the general things. We're, we're pretty good. We're set on it. Right? And so, yet, we're set on it. Why does life still feel the way it feels? What's going on? Okay, Jesus says, well, let's look at the granular level. Jesus assumes that we believe that. So now he says, take a look deeper into the things. Get to the very small granular actions that make up life. See, as I read this kind of these paraphrases, see if you've ever felt or behaved in these ways before in your interactions. Jesus says, you've heard the old truth. As long as you don't take a life, you're all good. We operate on the grounds, right? If we're not killing somebody, then we're not doing, it's okay. Everything's okay. Like, that's kind of the deal. Like, that's the, once we kill, it's done, right? You've heard it said that. But I say, having a settled opposition against the other. Having an, having a, an opposition where I'm not going to budge off of my rock, off of my place, off of where I think I am, where, where I think you're against me. Unwilling to move. A settled opposition. Or showing contempt, not just a disagreement, but a disgust for the other. Or visualizing them as godless. That's what fool literally means. To visualize them as godless, to, to have anger dreams about them as some sort of person that is not human because they're not God's working in God's image, right? Because they're godless. To visualize them as godless puts you in an unfavorable position. Puts you in an unfavorable position. Doesn't just put them in an unfavorable position, it actually puts you in an unfavorable position. So it's not about how they related to you, right? It's about how you related to them. None of us have probably ever been so stubborn that we haven't been able to be moved. We've never been disgusted with people to where we've actually like, treated them with disgust. And we've probably never had like anger, dreams, and visions about people that we're against. But it's, but, so we'll keep going, right? Move to the next one. You've heard, if, you've heard it said then, as long as you're not breaking covenant, everything should work out for you. As long as you're staying true to your most covenantal bonds, you're, like, you're good. Everything will work out. 
But I say it's actually your shallow appetites and affections that cost you more than you're willing to pay. An arm and an eye. That it's actually that what you're actually after in your relationship, in the way you're relating to people, not just how you behave towards them, but what you're after in relating to them, can get you in a lot of trouble and cost you a lot more. So you better pay attention. It's also said, because again, we all, we all operate on a way that we're all, you know, we never operate on our shallow appetites and affections. We're all deep people. So let's, let's say that we're deep. We move on. He says, also, there, you, you've heard it said, and this is where he kind of diverts from the ten words and goes into to the, kind of the sideways deal. He says, there are ways to get out of your bonds. Get granted a certificate of divorce. But I say that assuming you're the exception to the rule never ends well and only expands the mess. Has anybody ever felt that you're the exception to the rule? That, hey, listen, I know that, that the rule says this, but that's, that's for everybody else in their situation, not really me and mine. All it does is not get you out of the mess, but actually just makes the mess a lot bigger and brings a lot more people into the mess. Ironically, right? You think you're an exception, and now you're making a bigger mess for everybody else. Again, you've heard it said that the more exaggerated, and again, maybe, maybe see if this sounds familiar in our day and age, the more exaggerated, hyperbolic, exasperated pronouncements and claims are, the more weight they carry. But I say best keep it simple to avoid what or really who is behind that all, all that hot air. Right? We've never entered into a conversation with our spouse, our coworker, somebody on a, a platform of some sort, in any sort of exasperated, hyperbolic, exaggerated way, right? Like we've all been yes and yes, or yes and yes, and our nose or nose. We've all been calm and just said the truth and spoke it plainly in our limited, limited view and understanding, way of understanding, right? Right? We've never done anything like that. But what's behind all that energy? That's what Jesus says. There's something else behind that energy. Something that divides. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, or take back what's taken from you, or at least don't let it be taken from you in the first place. And that's the name of the game. Take what's yours, keep what's yours. But I say being indebted, having debtors, is how the game keeps going. That's actually how the game keeps going. Because if the game didn't, if it wasn't about being indebted to somebody, then we wouldn't get to play anymore, would we? We'd be all out of chips. I mean, that's what grace says, right? That's why we come together in a place like this, right? Like if we weren't dependent upon the irrational kindness and generosity of others, of God particularly, there's no game. So the game can't be take what's yours and keep what's yours. It has to be a different game. There has to be a different way to play. So in our relating to others, are we trying to take what's ours and keep what's ours? Jesus says that if we are, we're actually ending the game. We're not getting into the game. Or he said, lastly, you've heard it said, love those with you, those like you, and hate your enemies. 
But I say love, that is, seek the good of your enemies and pray for those that make your life difficult. After all, that's the maturation, that's the end, that's the fullness our Heavenly Father models and makes possible. That's what perfection looks like. The source of our discontent, as well as our neighbors, our spouses, our coworkers, is not fundamentally the specific person or the problems we encounter, but rather the unsettledness we and they bring into our encounters. The stubbornness, contemptuousness, and ease of dehumanizing which erupt when things aren't as they should be. That's what causes our anxiety. That's where our anxiety exists. The fact that what motivates our actions is often our personal, my personal, and often shallow appetites and affections rather than a shared, deeper longing for what is true, good, and beautiful. The culturally universal assumption that I am the exception to the rule, so I'm not responsible. Right? Doesn't, when we're the exception to the rules, we're not responsible. That's what churns our anxiety. The prevalent form of our communication, the exaggeration and hyperbole, which keep us from seeing, much less admitting, the truth of our limits. The standard operating procedure of most Americans, myself the first and foremost, of self-protection and judgmental justification which keeps me closed off from others who I will and truly actually need. The same grace I long for. And perhaps the algorithmically conditioned and condoned loving those like me and hating those who are different, which in truth stunts our maturity and perpetuates our inexperience of the already blessed life with others and God. These relational processes, these granular interactions upon interactions are the source of our ever-present unease. This is where the anxiety starts and churns. So, what do we do with it? How do we relate differently? Because, like, if, if, if this is the source of it, if, if the way we're relating in our relationship is where... Um, the processes of our relating is where we create the anxiety. How do we begin to relate differently? How do we change or mature in our relations? Really quickly, I'll tell you three ways that actually Jesus tells us. First, we move towards the collisions, the interactions. Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love presumes interaction, a collision, a collision with a not avoiding. But what do we do honestly in our life? What do we do honestly in our life? We avoid, don't we? We're avoiders. Even those of us that like confrontation, generally we're avoiders, right? And especially, like, so we hear the word enemies. Let me just say this, because maybe this hasn't been clear. As, as I was reading those kind of dispositions of our relation, the way we're relating, how many of the attitudes that you exper- experience, may, again, maybe I'm the only one who actually has, had been, has been you know, hard-hearted and headed and all that kind of stuff. But, but I'm sure you've experienced the hard-headedness of others, right? Like, when you're thinking about those things, those were particular people and situations that came to mind, right? They weren't just theoretical ones. They weren't just ideal ones. They're just, like, they're actually like, oh, yeah, that was, uh, that was my wife um, in, in our conversation. That was me in our conversation. My exaggeration and hyperbole came at it pretty strong. 
that was me and my coworker, me and my roommate, me and my employee, right? So then who are the enemies? Who do we generally make our enemies? Our enemies somebody that's way out there that we never see? No, even the way Jesus talks about it in the original language, it's your brothers and sisters, like literally the people in your, in your immediate family, your relationships with, right? And so when we say, like, love your enemies, move towards collision, I'm not talking about just moving towards people who are on the other side of whatever thing you're on. I'm talking about moving towards the people who you get in real fights with, real collisions with, have real relationship with. You actually move towards those people. And sometimes those are the hardest ones to move towards, aren't they? Right? That's why Jesus exhorts us in it. It's like we want to avoid those because they're so uncomfortable. But Jesus says this is actually the place where you feel the most tension, the place where you already are, the relationships that you're already in. It's the place where you also experience the most maturation. You move towards So we can't avoid the most difficult of our relationships, even if we want to. If we want to mature in our relating, we have to be ones who step towards others, move towards others. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to make everything good with everybody. That's not our goal, right? Peacemakers, Jesus talked about that, right? Is ones who, who get to be a part of cultivating peace, but we don't get to determine people's responses, right? All we can do is move towards them. But even Stephen Cuss, who we've quoted a lot, who reference in, in the, uh, um, the recommended resources, talks about this reality, even in high-anxiety situations and relationships, usually it only takes one person being willing to move towards to de-escalate the tension. If you both operate in avoidance and moving away from each other, you'll never actually solve anything. Time won't actually fix anything. But if one's willing to make the movement towards the other, to collide with the other, that usually begins the de-escalation process of the anxiousness in both people, in you, the one moving towards, as well as the one you're moving into. It really is an amazing reality that it only takes one to interact to cause change in both. And that's what actually quantum mechanics says too, which is awesome, right? So we move towards the collision, but we don't just move towards the collision. We we move towards the collision while we're praying in the presence. Not present, though that's true as well, but Jesus doesn't just tell us to love our enemies, but he also says to pray for those interactions, those people, those relationships where anxiety manifests. But why does he tell us to pray for those who seem to make life hard for us, to seem to be the place where our anxiety comes up? Because if you read in verse 45, so Matthew 5, verse 45, We pray these things so that you may be sons of your Father. Again, peacemakers is the only time in the the Beatitudes where we're said this is our, our, um, this is the the mark of our um, of our birth, our our rebirth, our resurrection, our 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 inheritance. That we are sons of the Father is when we're peacemakers. So we're we are like our Father when our God-like characteristics come out. Is when we begin to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute, so that. We can be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Because God's already there providing the nutrients for growth and maturity for flourishing. That's why we pray for presence. We pray in the presence. Because God is actually 
already doing the thing that we long to do. God's actually already bringing His kingdom, the wholeness and fullness of life in the midst of our anxiousness, anxiety, and division. He's bringing that peace already. Again, if wholeness and holiness are something we get a hold, we get a hold of, but mature into, like Jesus' map and model shows us in the first of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, then the same thing is true about how we experience the wholeness and holiness of the kingdom as something that's already there. And listen, there's a chronic problem with us Christians. We think God is only with us and not already ahead of us, not already in the midst of others' lives, right? Even though when we tell our own story, we can recount how God was with us when we weren't confessing believers, right? We all tell our story that way, don't we? We look back on it and see it, but we don't act as if that's true towards others. We don't act that our spouses, our coworkers, our friends actually are after the same thing that we're after, and God actually wants for them the same thing He wants for us. And so we pray prayers of avoidance. Lord, keep me from the suffering that so-and-so causes, that such-and-such causes. Lord, help me to be one who comes and takes what's yours and puts it in this place. Stake, stake the ground for, let's take this ground for, for Jesus. And listen, I get the courage that comes in that, and I get the, the natural feeling of not wanting to suffer, right? But how is Jesus teaching us to pray? How is Jesus teaching us to engage? With the assumption that what we're engaging and what we're doing, God's already there doing something. And so all we're doing is participating in what God's already doing. We're not bringing Jesus to anyone. We're recognizing Jesus already with us and already in them. Now, and just like us at certain times, they may or may not respond to Jesus with them, right? Light runs from darkness, right? That... People run from, from the light into darkness. You get what I'm saying, right? But we're not conquering stuff. We're not conquering problems. We're not conquering division. We're entering into it, believing, trusting, knowing that this is what God desires, wholeness, and stepping out into it. So we pray. We pray, Lord, help me to see you. Help me to see them. Help me to see them and me in you. Help us to see you together. Right? It's the old prayer that Julian of Norwich taught us. This prayer's been in, the, in our faith for generations, upon generations, upon generations. So I won't elaborate any more on it, because we've talked about it before, and I'll link in the sermon notes where you can go back and reference that and all the practices that come with it. So we move towards the collision, we pray in the presence, and then we follow the map and model retrospectively. We follow the map and model retrospectively. We look back on a day or a week or conversation and interactions, the granular interactions of life, and we can see not only the anxiety that we and others bring into those conversations and encounter, but also where the kingdom is making an entrance in maturing us. The Beatitudes, then, are not a guide through the day. They don't help us navigate through the day. They're not a general principle for daily living like the ten words are. Like, don't kill, don't steal, don't... Like, that's not what the Beatitudes are. That's not what the map, the map that we're using anymore is. They are a disposition or nature made manifest in our colliding. A disposition or nature that we share because we're already in the kingdom. The kingdom is in us, as Jesus would say. And so, therefore, we can be perfect. We can relate perfectly or properly as our Father is relating to us and others. Even those who make our world less than ideal. 
the map and model help us see the manifestation of the kingdom within our midst. They don't become the thing we use to help us get there. The map actually becomes, again, something that helps us see in retrospect where we're at. Where we've come and where we're going to go to. It's not a map quest printout of turns and directions. It helps us see where the kingdom's coming and are evidently dependent upon the Lord, poor in spiritness. When we're evidently dependent upon the Lord, the kingdom of God is there. That's what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. When we feel the loss and less within the relationship, in the midst of our conversation, when we feel the brokenness that's happening, the kingdom of God is there. When we're emotional but soberly, conscientiously angered and frustrated. <laughs> That's what meekness really means. The kingdom of God is there. When we're driven for right relating after the thing we all need, when we're actually after something good and true in the relationship, not just what we desire and what we want on the surface, the kingdom of God is there. When we're prone to forgiveness, rather than taking and keeping, the kingdom of God is there. When we're open and not hidden, when we're not manipulated by others or manipulating others in our conversation, when we're pure in heart, the kingdom of God is there. When we're operating out of our God-given likeness, when we're, when we're operating our God-given likeness, when we're participating in the peace that's coming because of God's presence, the kingdom of God is there. When we're not overreactive, when it goes sideways, because it goes sideways. When the collision doesn't go like we hope, the kingdom of God is there because isn't that how the world reacted to Jesus? Isn't that how we react to Jesus still sometimes? So we don't mature through time. We mature, we flourish, we stay salty and uncover our blessedness in Christ through interaction. And through interaction that we often get to see retrospectively. So for a couple moments, here's what we're going to do. This is going to be a very truncated version of what the practice will be this week. We've done similar things like this before in the past too. But like, if you're new with us, tomorrow we posted up a very detailed way to kind of extend this. But we're just going to take a minute to actually ask the Spirit to examine us, to examine, help us see the anxiety that we bring into a granular moment of life and also where we see the kingdom's entry in that same moment, okay? So here's what we're going to do in just a minute. We're going to be quiet. And all you're going to do is ask the Holy Spirit to do, to do a couple things for you. First, bring to mind a particular interaction or collision you had this week. One conversation or relationship that you had this week, interaction you had this week. Just one. Ask the Spirit to bring it to you. First one that comes in your mind, go with it, right? Don't need to go searching through everything. Just first one. And then consider how you move towards or one another or what propelled you apart. What was the, kind of the anxiety with, that was, was demonstrated in that interaction? Ask the Spirit to help you see your emotions and anxiety in that process. Like, and it could be positive. This isn't always, it's not always like, hey, you screwed this up, right? <laughs> right? What, was, what, what anxiety did you bring? Were you bullheaded? Were you shallow? Were you 
Were you, did you think you were the exception? Were you operating out of exaggeration? Like, what is it? What, are the, what is the anxiety? The way you, what is it? How did you relate the created anxiety in the conversation? And then, where, where is the kingdom of God being made manifest? Where is the nature of life, of God, life with God and others, actually coming into existence? Where were you evidently dependent? Feeling the loss, emotional but soberly, driven for the right relating, prone to forgiveness, open all those things, right? Cool? Okay, so I'm going to pray for us. And then just give us an opportunity for about three minutes is all to think through this. So you might not get through the whole thing, and that's okay. But we'll have about three minutes of quiet. Father, we thank you that when you show us how the world works, it's not just at a theoretical level. It's not just at a... Um, some sort of disconnected level of just even right and moral behavior. Lord, is that the, really the place where life is made, where life is experienced? And so I pray just for a couple moments, Lord, that because we're safe in you, because we're known by you, because you have acted in the right way always towards us, that for a few moments we'd be open to you. That you would show us in a little way what it looks like to experience flourishing in our relationships. All this we pray in your son's name. Amen. Have a moment of quiet.